0: Bienvenidos a Crónicas de la Raza. Welcome to La Raza Chronicles. On tonight's program, we focus on restorative justice and alternatives and opportunities for healing within the prison walls. We'll also bring you poetry from Jorge Argueta's latest book, so you'll get to hear some of his beautiful new poems and hear all about his latest creation, as well as his other poetic adventures. We'll also be offering a pair of tickets to the show this thursday it's a great show it'll be nortech collective our favorites bang data locura as well as bomba estereo so listen up and stay tuned
1: algo está cambiando mi i
0: You're listening to La Raza Chronicles, Cronicas de la Raza on KPFA Radio. I'm Julieta Kuznir, and today we're going to kick off our series on opportunities for healing and alternatives to the current criminal justice system. I have in the studio with me Sonia Shah. She has been doing a lot of work inside and out of prison. She also teaches at the California Institute of Integral Studies. And she is here to facilitate a conversation with another wonderful guest we have with us, Troy Williams. Sonia, thank you so much for joining us. Why don't you tell us a little bit about Troy and the conversation that you two are going to have today?
2: Absolutely. So I'm going to introduce you to Troy Williams. Less than a year ago, Troy was serving a life sentence at San Quentin State Prison. At San Quentin, Troy founded a media production group called the San Quentin Prison Report. And he was also the chairman of the San Quentin Restorative Justice Roundtable. After 18 years of incarceration, Troy was released and he's now a freelance columnist for the Oakland Post, a radio reporter and producer with Life of the Law. And Troy continues to facilitate restorative justice processes with the Insight Prison Project. And uh, just most recently, he's the founder of his own media production company called 4North22. Welcome, Troy.
3: Hey, how you doing?
2: <laughs> Great. So we're going to talk about restorative justice, about healing and incarceration. And there's all this talk about what restorative justice is these days, and I think maybe just to define it for the listeners is a good place to start. So what is restorative justice
3: in your mind? When you're in a room and you have someone who is considered a victim of a crime and you have someone who is considered a perpetrator of the crime and you have somebody who is just from the community in that room having a conversation, like this is restorative justice. You know, when I went to court, it was about me facing the judge. I didn't have to face the victims of my crime. Only thing I had to do was sit there and pretend that I didn't do anything so that I can get away and escape responsibility for what I did. It was about Williams versus the state, but it, it wasn't about like mending the harm that I had done to the victims of my crime, and which include my own children, how I was disconnected from my children. So they should be included in this conversation as well.
2: So I'm imagining and I'm picturing that you have sat in a room with a community of people, including people who've committed harm and survivors or or victims that have come in to talk about the harm that they experienced. So what was that like for you listening to survivors talk about the harm they experienced and what has it been like when you've watched other groups do that inside prison?
3: Well, I remember the... One of the first times I went and we were told that some survivors of crime was going to be there and they were going to share their stories. I think I was more curious because of my previous interactions with the Restorative Justice Group. Part of me expected what I had been told on television, that you would get there and the victims would be spewing venom. They wanted you dead. They wanted you in jail forever. And that it didn't matter what you felt or what kind of remorse that you felt. It didn't matter what you had done to change your life around, that they just wanted you dead. And that was the furthest from the truth. To me, that was the bridge that like embedded the concept of restorative justice in my heart.
2: So I'm understanding that it's like healing that happens across a survivor and a quote-unquote person who's committed a harm. And I'm wondering if you'd be willing to backtrack a little bit and talk about your life experiences that led you to incarceration and then led you into this community, this restorative justice community.
3: You know, in in saying that, I also want to say that the victims, quote unquote, the survivors who had came in, they made it clear that it wasn't just about their own hurt and pain. They didn't just see themselves as victims. They actually saw me. And people incarcerated as as victims, they identified with what we went through as a child, and that you know brings me to your question. You know, I grew up in high gang active environment where I felt forced into a gang. It's something I, I never wanted to be from a gang, never wanted to get involved. But every time you turn on the television, there's violence on TV. You know, they're telling you don't be violent, but then America's at war with this country. You know, you go to school, there's violence at school. You come home, there's violence at home. Everywhere you go, there's violence, and people are telling you, don't be violent. I can't walk down the street without somebody asking me what neighborhood I'm from. And so I'm experiencing all of this. I felt no other alternative than, you know, if you can't beat them, sort of join them kind of mentality. And to have people come in and empathize with what that little boy had to go through growing up in his neighborhood and realizing that I'm someone who is also a victim of crime In that my brother was murdered. The state would never look at me as though I were a victim of crime because I've been in prison, but my brother was murdered nonetheless.
2: It's as though we have certain people that we say are victims and certain people who aren't. And the reality is that Most people who have committed a harm have also experienced harm and are survivors. You're listening to Sonia Shah, and I'm speaking with Troy Williams, who is the founder of 4North22 and spent a number of years incarcerated. And uh, we're talking about restorative justice and the impact of incarceration. So what were the hurts in your life that then led you into hurting other people?
3: Looking back, reflecting on my life, it's like I felt a disconnect from my family. So as a child. I didn't understand, you know, my mother had to work all these odd hours in order to put food on the table. My daddy worked sun up to sun down. The only thing I knew was that I was being left alone and the block was raising me, right? The television was raising me. So all I knew is I felt this empty hole, this this void in my life. And you know, it wasn't until some, you know, gangbangers actually came to my rescue when I was being jumped that I attached myself to to that gang. Like there's been a strong urge in my life for like connection. And the unfortunate part is that I found that connection with the gang early on and went down that, that road that led me to prison.
2: Um, so Troy, can you tell us a little bit about what shaped your path in prison in terms of how you understood yourself? What was the role restorative justice played in, in that?
3: It wasn't until later that I learned about restorative justice that it began to, like, all of these thoughts that I had in my mind, all of these perceptions was like, oh, here's an explanation for this. This, Here are some words to define this, right? But, you know, one of the, I guess, biggest things for me is meditation played a a huge role for me um, in my transformation. I um, was in the whole... I was doing a shoe term um but i, I was in ad seg you know only somebody in prison will get the difference between a shoe and ad seg a shoe meaning a segregated housing unit ad seg meaning administrative segregation, but that's a bunch of prison talk right um but i was in I was in lockup what most people refer to as solitary confinement, and i started i got these books out and I started meditating. I started, like, reflecting on my life. And I remember initially sitting down and I was going to write down every name of people whose fault it was that I was in my situation. And after about 30 days of going through this list, I ran out of names. And I kept thinking to myself, hmm, somebody's missing. (laughs) And (laughs) I remember sitting down for three days trying to figure out who was missing from the list. And so I got up. I used to keep a piece of paper on the bunk, and I wrote all these names down on the top part of the paper. And so I got up, and I drew a line, you know, separating the top half of the paper from the the bottom half, and I was going to start over. And the moment I sat down, my name popped up in my head. And I got up, I wrote the name down, and there it was. You know, as plain as day. I was the common denominator in all of my problems that I was having. So that started me to looking inward. When I got to San Quentin, there was a whole different vibe there compared to prison life. You know, most of the prisons I've been in, you know, you on high alert. You know, it's like, imagine opening up your front door, and it's a portal that the moment you step through, you in Baghdad. You know, that's the way I felt walking outside the cell. In most prisons and facilities I've been in, the only peace that I got was in my sleep. And hopefully you're in a cell that you, with somebody you can get along with, or that's a whole nother nightmare. So, you know, you live in, in this hyper-vigilant, like, post-traumatic state. Every single day, and I get to San Quentin, and it's like a different type of place like there you know there's programs there's people coming in from the community there's like three thousand different volunteers coming in throughout the year that's um bringing programs um to the facility. Well, I got there in two thousand and six in two thousand seven um Discovery Channel came in with and um Warden Ayers being the warden at the time allowed us to start producing videos inside the prison and that is something that that changed my entire perspective that and also my involvement in other programs
2: so you just described two critical things one is this process through meditation which you came to accountability and the other is this community of people that came in that really impacted the way in which you can engage in yourself and transformation can happen and new things can happen. I'm wondering about um, your involvement in restorative justice programs at San Quentin and how you see other people grappling with accountability and grappling with healing themselves.
3: I remember seeing, you know, people come in and people would ask me, you know, did I do my crime, right? And so it's like, Yes, I'm one of the ones who did my crime. The problem that I think most people have is that nobody wants to think of themselves as a bad person. It's a very scary thing to look deep down inside and to make yourself vulnerable, right? To take off, which you don't know you're wearing a mask, but to take that mask off and just be vulnerable to the world and say, this is who I am. This is my like authentic self. That that's something that's hard to do. It's hard to go from being in this hyper vigilant post-traumatic state to letting your guard down. You know, it's like, you know, being in a war zone without a sidearm. That's what it's like. And so if I let my guard down, if I let my, my psychological guard down and I make myself emotionally vulnerable, then will I be preyed upon? What tools would I have? The only tools that I had prior to participating in Vogue of these groups was my fists. You know, They took the pistol away at the front gate, but all I had was my fists. And I learned how to fight, really. Sonia Shah, and I'm having a conversation with Troy
2: Williams, who is the founder of 4North22, and we're talking about restorative justice and the impact of incarceration. So, Troy, you were talking a little bit about influential programs at San Quentin that led to more transformation.
3: You know, I got to say, one of the most instrumental programs that I've been involved in was Vogue, which is the victim offenders education group. In fact, my work with 4 North 22 and everything that I do with media, it revolves around what I learned in Vogue. (sighs) Um, (laughs) One of the first modules in Vogue is Self as Victim, and it just goes back to that. How can I empathize with anything in the outside world, if the outside world won't empathize with me. And when you go in vogue and there's no judgment about what you did, you know, how you started your life off. There's only support into where you want to go with your life and support for healing in your life. So, you know, I'm sitting in there and I'm having... Facilitators identify with me, the child who went through the things that he went through that got him to this point. You know, that's impactful. Also, at the end of the module, there's a victims panel. And, you know, once again, I'm sort of expecting these victims to come in and, um, you know, be a little hateful even. But I'm also, like, not realizing what my impact on victims were. You, When you go to the board, the board of prison hearings, they want to know, you know, that you understand what you put your victims through. And I couldn't understand that. I mean, only thing in my mind was, okay, people got scared because they had guns pointed at them. Well, I've been scared my whole life. Like, I couldn't understand what that means until this one lady came in and I actually saw how what she had been through had paralyzed her entire life. And through her, I was able to see how my own life had been paralyzed. The only difference is that some people get scared and they run away. I get scared and I run too. I got scared and I picked up a gun and thought I had to keep a gun with me 24 seven in order to protect myself. I would not have come to that realization but for seeing what other victims had been through and how the stages of trauma impacted them in their lives i don't know if the you know audience like will get that but that is so impactful to realize that me and my victim are one and the same is something that you never forget
2: So you're describing this vogue restorative justice program inside San Quentin that takes people on this 50, 60, 70 week journey into understanding their own accountability as well as the ways they were survivors, the trauma in their lives that led to them also perhaps hurting other people and culminating in this victim panel and this incredible experience of two people sitting across from each other in a group
3: the impact of people who care, right? You live your life, I live my life, believing that nobody gave a damn about Troy. And therefore, if you don't give a damn about me, and I don't give a damn about you, and that's the way we are gonna do this. When you realize that people really do care, people are just reacting based on their own trauma like I have a different set of you know glasses and lenses in which I view life now, like I'm not viewing life from just a point of being in my own trauma, where I can't see anything outside of that. I'm viewing life with the understanding that I get to shape my perspective. I get to decide when to put my shades on and when to put my glasses on and what kind of shades and what kind of lenses I want with my glasses. Like I make that choice, and that's empowering. And that only came as a result of community. Like, that's profound. And so you
2: described to us this deep, restorative, transformational process and community. And so I guess I would ask you, what did you notice about others in the prison environment going through this process?
3: You know, one of the reasons why I even started my media company was because I got tired of watching These outside organizations lock up and the rest of them come in and try to describe who we were on the inside when they didn't have a clue. It's like, you know, looking at Mount Rushmore and just saying it's just a mountain when they don't have a clue as to what's going on. What I saw from men on the inside was people who wanted change but just didn't have the tool set to make that change happen. And so when these programs became available, you got people who are like diving head first to get into these programs because they actually want to change. And there's a lot that go on inside a prison the outside world never gets to see. For every one incident that the outside world may see, there's like 50 to 100 that have been diffused by a group of peacemakers who run around inside the prison and put out fires. Like right now, nobody knows that The same men who started the um, hunger strike have signed an agreement to end hostilities among races inside the shoe and inside the prison walls. Nobody knows that. Nobody knows that all the races, blacks, whites, you know, whether you're talking Sereno, Norteño, Crip Blood, BGF, or Aryan Brotherhood, nobody knows that a bunch of men who were formerly from those organizations are coming together to stop the violence. Nobody knows, nobody is hearing that. Mm -hmm. But that's what restorative justice is. Like we have say-so in what happens in our community, whether the outside world likes it or not, we have some say-so in what happens in the community. And if you really want real change, then I would urge people to get some real people from the block who have transformed themselves to come in and do the work.
0: You're listening to La Raza Chronicles, Cronicas de la Raza, I'm Julieta Cusnid, and I am very lucky to have in the studio with me Sonia Shaw, who is a professor who's been working in the restorative justice field for many years. She has been doing trainings inside and outside of prison walls for quite a while. We are also very lucky to have Troy Williams here with us. He's also been very active in the field of restorative justice, and he specializes in storytelling and bringing stories to light around the prison system and people returning home. So we are talking about restorative justice today and healing opportunities, alternatives to the current criminal justice system. So Sonia, as you know, Cronicas de la Raza, we focus on the Latino community, serving the Latino community here week in, week out. There may be some people listening that say, why are we talking about restorative justice? Can you give some context as to in terms of looking at the prison community and also those impacted by the negative effects of our current criminal justice system, why is it so important that we have this
2: conversation? So let me just take a minute to explain what restorative justice is. So it's really a way of looking at crime and harm that is completely different. That when harm happens it's a violation to a community and to people. It's not something that we necessarily have to outsource to the state to take care of. So in traditional incarceration or criminal justice you commit a crime, people lock you up, throw away the key. Nobody cares what happens to you. Nobody asks the victim what they need, what they want, whose obligation is it to do anything. And nobody asks the person who's committed the crime what they need and what would have been different in their lives. So what restorative justice does is it takes that whole system and brings it back into the community and has people who've committed harm and victims, people who've experienced harm and people in the community asking those questions of each other, saying, what do you need How can we heal? What does accountability look like? And that process can happen across the spectrum. It's happening in schools. It's happening in communities. And then there's this really, really vibrant, robust movement of restorative justice happening in prisons. And in prisons, we have many, many different groups and restorative justice programs and communities of people that are gathering together to take themselves through programs, through processes in which they're both looking at their own accountability They're looking at how to heal from their own harm, and then they're meeting with victims and survivors out in the community to talk about how to heal those survivors, which then leads to bigger healing in general. So even if somebody has already been incarcerated and it doesn't affect their sentence, they can still go through these very, very inner transformational restorative processes, which have an impact on our whole society and an impact on the future of men and women getting out of prison and incarceration. So the reason why this is so important to the Latino community is because 70% of the people in prison are people of color, many of whom are Latino. When you go into any prison, specifically down south, the number of Latinos from Mexico, from Central America, are very, very high and just in the local community. We have seen many Latino communities adopt restorative processes and can be used in prison. So, Troy Williams,
0: along with being the founder of the San Quentin Prison Report and along with the work you are doing with 4North22, your media company, you've focused on telling stories that aren't being told about our criminal justice system as well as what happens to folks and families that are impacted. So there are a lot of stories that aren't being told. We were talking off air. You said that's a big reason why you've decided to do this work and dedicate yourself to this storytelling You were the chairman of the Restorative Justice Roundtable. So it's a story that you wish people heard. You
3: know, the the biggest story for me is, you know, one I just talked a little bit about. The biggest story for me right now is about what the brothers, and when I'm talking about brothers, I'm saying black, white, and brown, inside the shoe are doing right now. Like, they have signed an agreement to end hostilities, right? I don't know if the outside world actually understands the impact of that. But imagine in, in a prison environment where everything is based on race. There's a black fountain, there's a white fountain, there's an area that you better not get caught slipping in when you're inside of prison. Imagine those walls coming down. Like nobody is telling a story about the journey that these men had to go through to make that happen in spite of all the opposition that it is to, to make it happen. To me, that's one of the biggest stories that's going on right now that is not getting, you know, airtime, you know, another one is just individual's personal journey of transformation. And I, I always tell Sonya this, I had to figure out how did I go from being this innocent boy who literally Had so much reverence for life that I wouldn't step on an ant. to being a gun-toting, gang-banging felon willing to put a gun to somebody's head and rob them. Like, how did I make that journey? And how did I make that journey back inside of an environment that is very hard to grow in? Those are the stories that need to be told. You know, when lockup goes in, they want to show the drama they want to show, you know, the knucklehead on the yard. It's like they always go up and get the biggest buffoon on the yard to be the guy in front of the camera. But what about the guy who's who's struggling because he can't, you know, locate his child? What about the Hispanic guy who doesn't know where his family's at because they've been deported? That's a lot of trauma in trying to figure that out and trying to negotiate the legal system to just try to understand that. You know, and with every story that I do, I got to say is also about personal accountability as well, because one thing that I really want us to get as communities, you know, both black and brown, is that they could not have locked me up had I not given them something to lock me up for. So I also got to be accountable to that as well. And at the same time, there's a lot of crap that's going on that we are getting undermined in our community with that we have to face.
0: You're listening to La Raza Chronicles, Crónicas de la Raza. I'm Julieta Cusnid, and today we've had Sonia Shaw as well as Troy Williams in the house here in the studio sharing with us some stories on alternatives to our current criminal justice system and breaking down restorative justice and how it can really make an impact in terms of people dealing with pain and hurt. So I'm sure there are a lot of people that want to know more. They want to know where can they get more information. So Sonia, where do you recommend people go? And then we want to hear from Troy
2: and hear about how people can connect to the stories he's telling. Uh, So some restorative justice organizations, Impact Justice, Restorative Justice Training Institute, Insight Prison Project, these are all different organizations.
3: And you can always go to 4nof22.com or you can look me up at Troy Williams Journal.
2: Thank you.
0: you just heard a song by Bomba Estadio. We're going to play another one and we're going to give away a pair of tickets to our seventh caller and they'll get to attend the show this Thursday, October 29th at the Regency Ballroom. They'll be able to see Nortec Collective, bang data locura dj cool kyle as well as dj stepwise and bomba Estéreo. straight from colombia you'll get to enjoy their music listen and call 510-848-4425 that's 510-848-4425 we'll be giving away a pair of tickets to our lucky seventh caller
4: for La Raza Chronicles. My guest today is the poet Jorge Argueta. He's the poet for the whole community, not just the adults, but also the children. He's published 16 books of children's bilingual literature. He's also a major poet, a beautiful poet, and he's brought us some poems with him today. So, Jorge, Bienvenidos to La Raza Chronicles.
5: Muchísimas gracias, Nina. Thank you so much for the opportunity to talk to you about my work.
4: And your work, you're so prolific. There's so much to talk about. (laughs) So, could you begin with your new poem about the Mission District, first in Spanish and then the translation in English?
5: Sure, thank you. Barrio La Misión. Llegué del Salvador al barrio La Misión. Mi corazón aquí volvió a conocer la alegría. En el barrio La Misión encontré amigos que en El Salvador ya no existían. En las calles de La Misión los volví a encontrar. Son de otros países, tienen otros nombres, pero son ellos, mis amigos, mis hermanos. Mis hermanas, ahora todos viven en este barrio, en esta misión que todos queremos como a un país lejano. En el barrio la misión se volvió paleta de coco, de tamarindo, pan de dulce, la tristeza. La nostalgia la calman los burritos de las taquerías. Cargan en su panza y en su lomo montañas mariachis y soles, y vientos de pueblos y ciudades que ya no están tan lejos. En el barrio La Misión volví a comer pupusas revueltas de esperanzas, pupusas revueltas de caricias. Aquí los murales son espejos recordándonos de dónde vinimos, y los danzantes aztecas son guerreros que nos recuerdan quiénes somos. Aquí en la calle veinticuatro me paro a ver casas donde habita gente que se niega a dejar de hablar en náhuatl, cental, mayaquiché o español, gente dulce del barrio La Misión que nunca para de luchar ni de cantar por la vida.
4: You just heard Jorge Argueta reading one of his new poems about the Mission District in San Francisco. And now Jorge, could you read it for us in English translation?
5: Mission Neighborhood. I arrived from El Salvador to the Mission Neighborhood. Here, my heart met happiness. In this neighborhood, I found friends that in El Salvador were gone. On the Mission Streets, I found them again. They had different nationalities and different names, but they are my friends my brothers, my sisters, they all live here now, and this mission I love as I love my faraway country, and the mission sadness turned into a coconut, a tamarind popsicle, or sweet bread, and the taquerias, burritos, carry in their bellies and backs, mountains, mariachis, sons and sons of cities and towns that are no longer too far away. In the mission neighborhood, I again ate pupusas mixed with tenderness and hope. Here in the mission neighborhood, the murals are mirrors that remind us who we are, and the Aztec dancers are workers who remind us where we came from. Here on 24th Street, I stopped to see houses and inhabited by people that won't give up speaking in what Central, Mayakiche, or in Spanish. Sweet people of the Mission neighborhood who no, never stop singing and never give up the struggle for life.
4: You just heard Jorge Agueta reading the English of his new poem. Jorge, that is so beautiful. Well, I have goosebumps. Always, when I hear your poetry, I learn something not always about what you're writing about, maybe something about my in my own life, For example, in this poem, because i'm eighty one years old, many of my friends have gone, and it made me realize while I was listening to you, I know that your friends died not just of old age but in fact were probably young and died from the Civil war in El Salvador, but that my new friends, my younger friends, are actually the revisit mm. of the friends that have passed, that it's the love and the friendship that exists outside us, not just in each identity, each personal identity. That's just a beautiful poem. Mm.
5: Thank you. Thank you so much, Nina. You know, uh, I, I left behind in El Salvador friends and family and places that we love really dearly, you know, but in this particular poem, I'm talking about friends, the the friendship that are endless, and the love for that friendship make you wanna have it again. So when I came to San Francisco in the in the early '80s, I I missed all of that, and somehow, some way, through writing, I became aware that my friends maybe were gone. But they they really never leave, you know, because you find them again with different names, with different nationalities. in the struggle for life or to find the justices that we're looking for in this world, you find them again. They could be from Nicaragua, from Mexico, from Peru, from China, from wherever they might be. But they continue to be your friends, you know, with different names.
4: And that's the beautiful thing about the Bay Area, that there are people, beautiful people here from everywhere.
5: Exactly. I, uh, I have friends uh, from Nicaragua that remind me of friends that no longer are living in El Salvador, but somewhere else. And it's weird and sweet and beautiful how, how that can be.
4: Well, you have been one prolific person, and you have contributed so much to the Bay Area since your arrival. Can I refer to the 16 books that you've added to the literary scene of San Francisco and of the whole United States and the Spanish-speaking world? Because your children's books are bilingual, (laughs) And that's a very beautiful, beautiful thing. I'm referring now to the new book that I'm holding in my hand, Olita y, or Olita and, Manula, The Big Birthday, El Gran Cumpleaños. It's a beautiful, beautiful book with fabulous illustrations by El Alf Sanchez. It's just a delight. Can you talk about this book?
5: Sure. Thank you. You know, I really appreciate your words and touch my heart in a very beautiful way. I've been writing children's books for many years now, and and to be honest with you, you know, nothing makes me feel so, in in many ways, accomplished Uh, when I write children's poetry. And that don't make any more difference. I used to think, oh, I'm gonna write an adult poem, so I'm gonna switch. That doesn't exist anymore, you know. It's like it continues to be the same feeling, the same energy. And I guess it's just the, the way we play it with words that is a little bit different. And the stories, of course, when you write stories, you know, when you, the, when you write poems, um, trying to make that difference.
4: Well, I think this book would make any child happy. <laughs> it, it has all of the things that little children love. It has birthdays. They love them. It has food. Oh, they love food. And it has animals, and they love animals. How did you go about writing this book, and who do you think would be the perfect person to receive this book?
5: <laughs> well, to be honest with you, you said it all. You know, you said you, you said it has it has a surprise, it has a birthday, it has uh, all these beautiful colors, and the magic of it, the colors. That's a, a great combination for children. This book, Olita and Manjula, it's a love story about. The Salvadorian people with one very special animal that came to live in El Salvador many years ago. And this animal became so famous. It became an icon. It lived in El Salvador for 55 years. She came to El Salvador, Manjula, when she was five years old. She's an elephant. Didn't want to say that because it's a surprise. (sighs) But anyway... My house in El Salvador is in the in San Jacinto neighborhood which is not really far away from from the zoo where Manjula used to live right so when we when we wanted to go have some some beautiful time and seeing this amazing animal you know we just walked to to the zoo you know it was the love of the people uh she made generations happy so Holly... Holly Ayala, my, my, my wife, you know, she, she's been traveling to El Salvador for the past 20 years. And she heard all these beautiful, amazing stories about Manjula, but she never really seen her, you know. So one day we took a trip from my house, like it's just like 20 minutes, you know, to, 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 to Manjula's house. And it occurred to me, why not write a story about a, a little girl that never seen, that, that, that had never met Manjula. We took that trip and the story came about. Mm.
4: And you even named the little girl Holly.
5: <laughs> well, Holly, you know, in El Salvador, they they call her Oli or Olita. To me, it sounds so beautiful. You know, it's like a Spanish for little wave.
4: Well, the book is absolutely beautiful. And it's wonderful, as you turn the pages, that you see all the different landmarks of the Jancinto neighborhood in San Salvador. It's kind of a touristic visit mm. to that city.
5: Exactly, yeah. At the same time, you know, Nina, I think that elephants are such a powerful, powerful spirit. And this story, it will talk to the Salvadorian hearts and minds and spirit, but also to anybody who, who loves animals, who has that uh, affinity with feeling out of place and then going back to, to their place, you know, of or, origin. In this case, uh, many Salvadorian children who are living in El Salvador, and now they live here, somehow some way they're losing that link in books like this you know in spanish and in english it makes them feel that they belong, make them feel proud of their culture, that there's something really beautiful that, that still belongs to them.
4: What's so beautiful about this book is the elephant, because the elephant is universally beloved animal. I think the whole world loves elephants. We like to think, oh, elephants never forget. Mm. And now that we see the extermination of the elephants that are happening, it's it's very alarming and the whole world is coming to the defense of the elephant because it's such an important symbol for us because they stick together, <clears throat> they take care of each other, they're very loving to each other, they mourn each other's deaths.
5: Exactly, yeah. And this particular elephant, you know, she became really an icon for, this, for generations of Salvadorians. She went through uh, terremotos, earthquakes, La revolution, the revolution, she lived all of it. She lived the, through civil war. Exactly, you know. So the Salvadorian people really, really, really love her. When sadly she passed away a couple of years ago, there were like 60,000 people that came to her wake. So to us, it's a symbol. For all that, what you're saying, the the, the magic that represents the, this giant, the humbleness about the elephants, the strength, all of it is conveyed, perhaps not in the book, but in, but in the symbol that this animal represents?
4: Oh, I think it's in the book. As I turn the pages reading it in English and Spanish, you can feel the love that's in the book and that the elephant represents. It's in the book. There's no doubt about that.
5: Oh, thank you, Nina.
4: And there's a big party that you're having for the book on Friday, November 6th, from 6.30 to 9 p.m. at Acción Latina, which is at 2958 24th Street. That's Friday, November 6th, 6.30 to 9 p.m. at Acción Latina, 2958 24th Street. Well, that is one of the things you're doing. (laughs) And this is one of the books that you've written. But there's more that you're doing. Do you want to talk to us about the... Canto Festival, and the one in San Francisco, and then the fantastic festival that you're helping to put on in El Salvador. And that I want to tell listeners, you're not only helping to put it on in El Salvador, you initiated it. Years ago, you came to this program. <laughs> you had this crazy idea that you could put on a children's poetry festival in El Salvador. It was a crazy idea. And I remember I gave you ten dollars and I'm sure <laughs> <laughs> you had a lot of other collectings of money. But you did it. And now what number is this of children's
5: it will be poetry the festival?
4: Sixth. The sixth. That's just amazing. Talk to us about that.
5: <laughs> sure. We're becoming to publish our own book with Luna's Press Books. That Olita and Manjula is the very first, and on that day, we can introduce to the community the concept of, of us as, as a press.
4: So up until now, Luna Press Books has mainly been a bookstore. Exactly. But now, with this book, you become a press.
5: Exactly, yeah. That's what we're doing.
4: So now let's hear about the Festival de Poesía Floricanto, November 7th, right the day after the introduction of the book at Luna Press Books at Acción Latina on November 7th, Saturday, from 1 to 6 p.m., and this also takes place at Acción Latina. Let's hear about it.
5: Floricanto para Nuestros Niños y Niñas is a very beautiful children's poetry festival. The idea with this festival is to, basically, to hear the voices of our children. This fourth uh, Children's Poetry Festival, Floricanto, we did four writing workshops. They were they were really beautiful. Children came and wrote poetry, color, their dream, read, they sing. And now the beauty of, of all this, can going to see them on Action on the 7th. But not only that, Nina, Acción Latina, El Tecolote is going to publish a printout on the center folder of the decolote with the poetry and the pictures of the children writing and their poetry. So there they are going to be published poet, fresh, 7 to 14 years old.
4: And El Tecolote prints in 15,000 copies, so that's quite a large distribution. I
5: know. On the 5th, these poems that the children wrote, they're going to be available, so the children probably going to be reading poetry from the actual newspaper on that day.
4: Oh. Oh, they'll be opening El Tecolote and reading their published poem. How fantastic. That's Saturday, November 7th from 1 to 6 p.m. It'll take place at Acción Latina, 2958 24th Street, just a few blocks from the BART station.
5: From 1 p.m. to 6 p.m. And the idea behind this is to not only to recognize the voices of our children, but the community, the Latino community that exists, that is still really strong on the Mission District, is, is asking to, to come and su- and support us. It's asking to to join us and to continue with, with these beautiful efforts that we have for poetry, for writing, for music.
4: So tell us about the event in El Salvador.
5: That poetry festival is called Manjula, Manjula International Children's Poetry Festival. And we've been doing that for the past six years. We see children that, that come from different sectors of San Salvador and other cities around El Salvador. Children who are in, com- in communities, some of them really violent. They come to be around the written word. And, the, and again, they dance, they write poetry, they listen to poetry, they participate. They have four days of poetry. And nowadays, you know, the Salvadorian poets and writers are taking it in their hands to start doing the organization of it, you know. So I think I think that the festival is growing, and it's not only growing, but the Salvadorian youth are taking it, and I'm very happy for that.
4: You see the seeds that you planted sprouting and flowering.
5: Well, in reality, you know, it's not only me. I don't want to take other people's credit, but there's Holly Ayala, who has collaborated since day one. Manlio Argueta. Francisco Alarcón. Francisco Alarcón, who came with us four years in a row. There's also a Margarita Robleda from Mexico. She's going to be there this year. And the Salvadorian poets, too, help us all the way. And there is there's the support of the private sector that is working al- alone with us.
4: Well, this is wonderful because when you started, it was you with the support of Holly and <laughs> The friendship of Francisco Arlacón. Exactly. And this dream, this tremendous dream, and it's just beautiful that the country has embraced it and it's grown feet of its own.
5: Well, you know, the the truth of the matter is that poetry, poetry is a literary medicine for the heart. It's a symbol of love. And El Salvador... Sadly, we have a lot of violence going on, and through poetry, we can heal that anger, that sadness, that spirit of anger that, that some, somehow, some way, stays in the soul and the heart of the people. And through the manifestation of the arts, we're doing something really beautiful.
4: Well, thank you so much, Jorge Argueta. If people want to enjoy the celebration of your new book, Olita y Manuela, The big birthday or el gran cumpleaños, it's going to be on the 6th of November, Friday, from 6.30 to 9 p.m., At Acción Latina, 2958 24th Street in San Francisco, a few blocks down from the BART. And then on Saturday, November 7th, from 1 to 6 p.m., also at Acción Latina, there's going to be the big festival of poetry, Floricanto para nuestros niños y niñas and that's going to include the local children reading their own published poetry from El Tecolote. Francisco Herrera will be there singing for them. There'll be arts and crafts and face painting. There'll be hip-hop youth performances and the joy of hearing our children as creators. That's Saturday, November 7th from 1 to 6 p.m., At Acción Latina. Muchas gracias, Jorge Argueta.
5: Muchísimas gracias, Nina. Thank you so much. It's always a pleasure to come and talk to you.
4: The very same.
0: Muchas gracias por estar con nosotros. Thank you so much for spending the hour with us. You've been listening to La Lajasa Chronicles on KPFA Radio. To stay up on our news and calendar and listing of local events, like us on Facebook. That's La Lajasa Chronicles on Facebook.com. We also invite everyone to check out our archives at soundcloud.org slash Chronicles. Muchísimas gracias y buenas noches.